1: Hello and welcome to History Rage, the podcast where we invite uproar as historians rip apart the public perception of the history we think we know and love. The podcast where myth is mercilessly mocked in the public sphere. I am your regular host, Paul Bavel, and I am here with my loyal co-host and that most private of eyes, Kyle Glover. Hello. And this week, dear ragers, we are flying back to the Georgian period to rip apart history's finest and prick the pomp of the era. So today, to show that the pen is mightier than the sword and the video camera is mightier than the print, we are joined by history presenter, TikTok queen, and author of Uproar, Alice Loxton. Alice, welcome to History Rage.
2: Thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful to be here.
1: Wonderful. And, and to, I would say, finally put a face to the name, but, you know, I've seen you on God knows that many videos that you were instantly <laughs> recognisable at Chalk Valley.
2: I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I know you from numerous TikTok videos, which appear all over social media. And I have to say that has brought a refreshing angle to the delivery of public history, something I'm quite passionate about. Love you academics out there. I really do. But us public historians are where it's at. So can you tell us a bit of your background as a historian and how you managed to break into these sort of media in the way that you have?
2: Of course, yeah. So I'm just a, I was a history student at university and I've always loved history in all sorts of different ways. Um, And I've always been working on all sorts of different history projects. And when I was at university, I had this idea to write this book, Uproar, because I was studying James Gilray and I was studying the 18th century and the politics of that age. And I sort of realised it was really strange considering the great Influence and impact of people like James Gilray that we didn't know more about him. I didn't even know who he was. And I'd been studying, you know, history my whole life. So that's why I kind of got into the writing side of things. I sent off this proposal and then I started writing the book. And then I was also lucky enough to, when I just left university, I joined Dan Snow's. Kind of, uh, was his company called History Hit, which mm-hmm. was in its early days at that point, which is good fun. And I just, I was just the intern and I just kind of started doing work experience and that kind of thing. Um, and when I was with History Hit, it was really great fun. You know, we were, I was editing podcasts and I was filming on location. Um, you know, some really hilarious experiences uh, with people like Ray Mears or Dan Cruickshank or, or, you know, all of the great Susanna and that kind of thing. So yeah. I learned a lot from kind of, uh, you know, a lot about media, a lot about how to present history to the public and also had loads of time to kind of experiment with things like TikTok and Instagram. And, you know, it's just something that I absolutely love doing. I love making videos. I love history. And so it's very natural, I suppose, that I've ended up you know, doing my own Instagram channel and TikTok and that sort of thing. Um, and now talking to you guys on, on these podcasts. So yeah. I'm now freelance and I just kind of do lots of writing and videos and whatever, literally whatever comes my way, I'll do it.
1: Yeah. How's the, uh, how's the book going by the way? So I know it's, it's out yes. now. I do have yes. a, I have a copy of the audio book. I haven't got a copy of the, uh, uh the print book, but
2: well, what's funny is that, yeah, I mean, the, it's going really well. It's going really, really well. Um, you know, it's been great fun. I've gone to loads of festivals and talks to people all around the country. Um, but it's funny you mentioned the audiobook because, you know, I'm just learning how all this stuff works. I'm learning how the publishing world works, but in uproar, it's a lot of, there's a lot of Georgian jokes and there's a lot of kind of James Gilray imagining what a French person might sound like. And he writes the accent in. So when I was doing the audiobook for these quotes, you know, <laughs> I was sort of thinking, like, how am I supposed to pronounce this French word, you know, in a Georgian way? And, you know, it was really hard to kind of, it's actually quite difficult to do the audio, but 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 good fun, a good exercise, I think. Um But yeah, it's going really, really well. I'm going to the Edinburgh Fringe soon cool. to do a show all about it. Yeah. So that'll be really, really fun. I mean, I think it's just that thing of just trying to present history in a way that's, you know, people, that's just a bit more accessible. So it's, for example the Edinburgh fringe. I mean, yeah. I don't know that many historians who do that. <laughs> Maybe there's a reason for it. I'll soon
1: find <laughs> out. <laughs> yeah, it could be a tough crowd. So from from the thing that you love the most then, let's get into History Rage and the History Rage question. And I know that you've you've got a rage that then we're going to kind of depart from. So listeners <laughs> yeah. out there, stay with us, okay? But Alice from your social media high tower up there could you please tell our baying mob of history ragers what you wish everyone would just stop believing
2: so everybody my big rage my big the big the thing that keeps me up at night, many many nights, is the great myth it's one of the great myths of history the idea that napoleon was a short man and i have to tell you ladies and gentlemen, ragers, wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, that this is actually not true at all. It's a complete myth. And it was created by uh, the print shops and the prints that were put in the print shop uh, created by the likes of James Gilray and Isaac Cruikshank. And really, it was just kind of propaganda during the Napoleonic Wars. And in fact, Napoleon was not short. Uh, He was described at the time as by another officer as, well, he was described by the English captain as remarkably strong. He was a well-built man and above average height. And actually, he would have probably stood taller than Nelson, who was described in some ways as small and not a tall man. I mean, they're both probably kind of average height, but there's no reason to suggest that Napoleon was especially short. Some of the reasons why some people might have thought that is because he was often surrounded by his personal guards, who he made sure were incredibly tall, yeah. which, you know relatively made him seem shorter, and also there was some when he died in 1821 his body was measured, and the measurement in the kind of French measurement was different to how the English measured their inches, and it wasn't really converted properly. Um, so perhaps that's sort of uh, that that might have kind of helped the confusion. But anyway, it's a complete myth and it's not true at all. But I think it is quite remarkable that many people, you know, probably uh, you know, many people if you walk if you go to the street and you ask people what's the first thing you think about Napoleon, one of the things they'll probably say is he was a short man. He was really, really short. Yeah. Which isn't true. It's quite amazing that people think that. And when you think, you know, of all the things you could know about Napoleon, whether it's his campaigns or the fact he crowns himself in Notre Dame Cathedral or, or all of the amazing things that he did do, you know, that's the thing that people come away from thinking. And where have they got that from? James Gilray and James Gilray's perception of this great man. So I think it's a real testament to the legacy and the power of satire and i suppose maybe that's my other raging point if i'm allowed to yeah, have another, yeah, your
1: rage you go right people, ahead people
2: yeah <laughs> i'm gonna rage on i'm gonna rage on that people and maybe this is my bigger rage to be honest that you know that's just one example of the kind of impact of the prince at the time and people like james gilray and the power that he could have and the way that he could shape society through the satire and i think it is remarkable that James Gilray is not better known. Um, is not a national treasure. He's not a hero from the history books. You know, I really think he should be up there with people like Reynolds or Turner. You know, or or kind of figures from that yeah. age like Jane Austen or or Byron. So I'm I'm on actually a big campaign. Part of my campaign, I suppose, is to bring Gilray back. Is a real household name. Actually, what I really want is him to have a place on the ten-pound note, or uh, maybe like a Netflix series would be the the kind of success metric. I think. Right then, well, <laughs> but there we go. That's my. There range. you go,
1: chief <laughs> exec of Netflix. I'm sure you're a listener. But yeah. That that needs to be commissioned, <laughs> and the Royal Mint tune out for a moment and go and print that note. And before we dive into uh, all of the specifics and getting into the detail, I'd just like to take a moment now to welcome back Cult Napoleon, who left us after Zach White's rant there about the true nature of Napoleon. So this one's for you guys. You're probably going to enjoy that. Okay, so we're gonna get into this 18th, 19th century satire. I myself, like like you said, studied history all your life, but don't know didn't know who Jim Gilroy was. I didn't know who James Gilroy was, and I think I've got a 23-year head start on you. <laughs>
2: and so. Yeah.
1: so tell us a bit about him and the famous images that that he's produced.: um,
2: Sure, of course. Yes, well, thank you. I'd love to. Knock yourself out. <laughs> girl. Let me no. <laughs> where to start? Okay, well, James Gilroy was born in 1756. He was born in the the middle, I suppose, of the 18th century. And he was born in Chelsea, which at this time in history was a kind of village a few miles from the centre of London. And he was born in Chelsea because his father, also called James Gilray, had fought at the back of the Fontenoy and he had lost an arm. And obviously being a one-armed soldier, not yeah. that useful. Um, and so he kind of sought respite by going to Chelsea, where there was support for veterans as there is today in the form of the Chelsea Pensioners yeah. Hospital. And so James Gilray is growing up around there. And he basically, it emerges that he's very, very good at drawing. And he has a go at kind of, well, he basically ends up studying at this brand new artistic institution, the Royal Academy Schools, which was set up by Joshua Reynolds. And, you know, young men are going here to be taught how to make real kind of classic art. So things that you might see in a National Trust house, the great portraits, you know, stately portraits, noble portraits. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's all kind of a a complete kind of fiction. It's all kind of airbrushed history. You know, people didn't actually look like that. They didn't actually look as noble um, as as they seem in those kind of portraits. And basically, I mean, I think James Gilway, he did probably want to make a career in that, but he didn't really make it. And anyway, he ends up making these satirical prints. But it was really important to know that he went to the Royal Academy schools and he was trained in how to depict people and how to do portraits because... It meant that he had this kind of high, high education, or this like really good education at depicting individuals. And instead of applying that to grand portraits, he applied it to what was considered low art at the time, if you like, you know, the prints that you'd buy on the streets. But what this meant was that it created this new genre sort of thing, if you like, you know, it, it kind of created something in the middle where there was this incredibly talented artist applying themselves to something that incredibly talented artists didn't normally apply themselves to. So I, you know, you have to sort of think of it as like, what if what if, what if like, you know, somebody who was an incredible designer started designing your PowerPoint? I mean, yeah. how is it going to elevate your PowerPoint? You know, it's going to completely change it. It's something completely new. So that's what James Gloria was doing. And the result was that he created these really incredibly kind of striking images. Some of them are really weird, some of them are really wacky, some of them are really savage. Because they're funny, they are. Um, they're witty. They are very perceptive of the politics going on at the day of, at the day. And he made images of uh, politics, of the royals, of Napoleon. But he also made images of ordinary life. So the follies and foibles of everyone that he could see. People falling asleep at church. The prime minister sleepwalking. Somebody taking their medicine. Everything. Everything was fair game for Gilray and these prints were displayed in the print shop windows of london and people went mad for it so this is really the beatlemania of the day when a new print was put up it was said it was veritable madness so you had to really like, really really imagine people just going absolutely wild visitors said that you had to make your way to the front of the crowd with your fist so you had to really think that this is a great sensation huge crowds and in in a time when when you look at these images, and I would suggest that people do have a little look, you you know they are really striking and they are really funny. And when you think about everything that we've seen for the last two hundred years, everything that kind of Photoshop has thrown at us, or movies, or or all kinds of you know creative ideas and images, the fact that these images are still striking to us today really proves the point that they were you know they are really powerful because. It must have been incredibly impactful mm. for the people of the 18th century who have never seen any of the things that, that we're used to. So yeah, that's James Gilroy. That was his great legacy. Uh, he worked really from about 1790 to 1810. So yeah. brilliant cast of characters, you know, William Pitt versus Charles James Fox, George the third versus his son, Prince George, the later Prince George, as well as people like the Duchess of Devonshire and Nelson and. And all of the events that are happening in that period, the Napoleonic Wars, the French Revolution. And then, you know, tragically, in the last few years of his life, he, uh, he, at almost at the same time this George III suffers from his kind of uh, descent into madness, around 1811, Gil- Gilray also loses his eyesight. He basically, mm. from what it sounds, suffers from some sort of madness. He lives with his print shopmaker. And uh, he lives with the print shop owner, Hannah Humphrey. And, you know, it ends in this like really depressing way that he's kind of c- trying to commit suicide and he's drinking a lot. and he, When he dies, it's three weeks before the Battle of Waterloo and it's just not even re- hardly reported. So it kind of just fizzles out, you know, and it's quite sad sad way but and and Jonas hasn't really recovered I don't think he's like really come back to the mainstream (laughs) ever since so I'm hopefully on a mission to start the Gilray renaissance (laughs) but anyway that's a little that's a little kind of sense of of Gilray's life and what what he did
1: yeah so could you give us a couple of like uh, examples descriptions of some of the famous images that we can point at Gilray
2: yeah sure so one of my absolute favourites is one called A Bolluptry Under the Horrors of Digestion. And this is an image of the Prince Regent, or not Prince Regent, just Prince George, Prince George at the time in the 1790s. And what I love about this image is, you know, what I was saying, how we always, if you imagine George Fourth, you always think of him probably as one of the portraits. So kind of looking quite noble, perhaps wearing some uniform you know, perhaps in some kind sort of classical pose or some kind of classical landscape. That's how we might imagine him. And you might imagine he was quite regal, whatever the kind of people like Reynolds decide to, to paint about. But what Gilray does is he just gives us the reality. This is not airbrush. There are no photoshoppings, no filters here. And there's this wonderful print, which right in the sense of it is this enormous, swollen stomach of Prince George. And he's reclining in this Hogarthian way. And he's just had this enormous feast. And he's picking at his his teeth with his fork and there's bottles mm. rolling around the floor. There's, you know, bits of meat on the table. There's gambling debts are unpaid. There's an overflowing chamber pot. There are all these tiny little clues that give a much bigger and fuller picture of, of the prince's life and the prince's habits. And in the background, there's this building site through the, the site in the window. And that's this kind of this... He had this, (laughs) he was building this thing basically throughout his entire life as a prince, Carlton house, which was his London home. And it was just such a sinkhole of public money. So you can see that in the image as well. And you can see Gilray has this wonderful thing where he has this image of the Prince of Wales's emblem. So it's got the three ostrich feathers. And then instead of having, you know, whatever George's kind of symbol was, he replaces it with the tools that this prince holds most dear, which is a knife and fork. So there's lots (laughs) of little kind of. Clues and fun little things there. So that's a brilliant one, a voluptuary under the horrors of digestion. But I guess there's a lot, you know, the big ones that we should probably talk about on Napoleon and what he did to Napoleon. And these really came about in 1803 sort of time when things were really hotting up. I mean, the 1st of February, 1803, Napoleon's declaring Mm wars, and the country was infected with what was described as scarlet fever. And one of the very first images that Gilray creates, which shows Napoleon in this this kind of very short way, is called Maniac Ravings. And it depicts Napoleon, very, very short, you know, not just kind of short as in someone who might be a short adult, but actually probably, you know, would come up to a chair sort of height. So definitely as a child. And he's really playing the part here as a toddler having tantrum so his legs and his his knees are up in the air his arms are you know flying around the place and he's pushed the chair over he's pushed the globe over he's pushed you know all the papers are up in the air and (laughs) he's got all these enormous flames coming out of his head white hot flames and all of these words are coming out like british newspapers british newspapers invasion 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 oh 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 all this kind of thing and every there's a lot of exclamation marks at the end of every word. But what's so great is that, you know, it's not in these fully formulated sentences. It's all of these words. You know, when toddlers can't even, they can't quite get the words out. They're just spluttering because they're, yeah. they're so they're so angry. You know, that's what's really being captured here. So that's one of the great prints, 1803, Maniac Ravings. And then... I love
1: the, the you, little subtitle that it has to that as well, which is Little bony in a Strong Fit.
2: That's it. Yeah. So that's one of the nicknames they gave them, Little Boney. So they created this whole character, you know, and they really went to town with it. The more that Napoleon, you know, became quite a threat, I guess, the more that they created these images. Um, and they love the, they, they, um, using Gunnivore's travels as a kind of theme in lots of these prints. And there's one of George the third, who's this playing the, the, the part of the, the giant, I guess. And he's got this kind of little glass to look at this tiny, literally tiny, tiny Napoleon that's just standing on his hand. Um, so that's another one. But then the famous one, which you probably know, maybe people know, is The Plum Pudding yeah. in Danger. Do you guys know that one? Yeah. Um, and this one's, Martin Rosen called this one of the, like probably the most famous cartoon ever made. And it's been used again, and again and again by cartoonists ever since. So if you open the papers today, you might well see i every year at least, probably twice a year, the you know, the British newspapers, the the cartoonists will use a form of the this plum pudding image. And it's basically this plum pudding in the centre, and then two politicians either side and the plum pudding in the centre is basically uh, symbolising whatever they're fighting over. So sometimes it's been like the COVID vaccine, sometimes it's been a uh, COVID virus, whatever. Um, so it's a great one to, to use, to to look out for. Let me just tell you a bit about what it is. So basically, the plum pudding in danger depicts William Pitt on the left, and he's mm-hmm. the Prime Minister at the time, and he is tall. He's depicted as, as he was, tall and lanky, and he's got his bicorn hat on. And opposite him is Napoleon, again, incredibly, incredibly small, kind of just perching just about on his chair. And he's got this enormous tricorn hat on with this enormous feather that's completely dwarfing him. And these two figures are sitting at this table and they are carving up a plum pudding, a great seeming plum pudding, bigger than, much bigger than both of their heads. So really, and in this enormous steaming plum pudding and this is probably quite mm-hmm. comparable to a christmas pudding that we might know today and they're both slicing off a chunk each william pitt is a, but, but what you what you suddenly realize the more kind of you know those a bit more savvy can look at this well we'll see that this plum pudding is also representing the globe because it has the shapes of the countries on on the 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 spherical form itself And so Pitt is cutting off a big slice which reads the ocean. So that's representing Britain's naval supremacy at the time. And then Napoleon's cutting off a big slice that says Europe because of Napoleon's dominance of Europe at the time too. And so it's really this big kind of commentary on the greed and the insatiable appetites of politicians. And there's a wonderful little subtitle, um, which is a kind of Shakespearean misquote, which reads, the great globe itself, and all which is inherit is too small to satisfy such insatiable mm-hmm. appetites. So it's all about the kind of insatiable appetites of politicians and the greed of politicians, I guess, which obviously is a theme that <laughs> is timeless and can be used again and again, even with modern-day politicians.
1: Yeah, and probably future politicians as well. Yes,
2: yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a, It's got a long life. It's a long game, this one. So that's probably the most famous one that they have. And that really, that image probably crystallizes our idea, or lots of people's idea of Napoleon being a short man, which he was not. (laughs)
1: Okay. Well, we're going to, the three images that we've discussed there, we will put links in the show notes if uh, if you guys out there want to have a look at what we're actually talking about. So you mentioned how crowds would come out to look at the new prints and see the latest editions. So what did people think of of these prints? What was the public reaction to them?
2: Well, yeah, the public reaction was wild. I mean, people, you know, it was veritable madness, genuinely. When a new print was put up in the window in Hannah Humphrey's print shop on Old Bond Street, it was the kind of mood and the sensation was described as indescribable, (laughs) if that makes sense. So you know, it was a real kind of frenzy and excitement, and I think you have to remember that when these prints were put up, it was it was the first time that people were ever seeing these. You know, it was like a real big reveal moment, I suppose. And I think it's fun to imagine people. We know that people would have stood outside these windows and they'd be laughing. So people laughing, really heartily laughing, giggling. And when you look at these prints the more that you look at them, the more that you realize there's all these tiny little clues. So you have to remember people in London would have stood outside the print shops and they would have been, you know, it, on one, in one way you look at it and it's a funny image, a kind of slapstick image that somebody who couldn't even read would understand. But then there are all these levels that if you're someone who's educated in classical history, perhaps you might see some little jokes. You think, oh, I, I get that. I get that little one. And the more that you look at it, the more funny it becomes. So there's there's a lot of levels to be looking at here. And, and and so for different kinds of people, it was funny in different ways. But the real power of them came in the way that they were displayed publicly in these windows. So, you know, this was like a public display of art, a public art gallery, a public advert, if you like, which, you know, perhaps wasn't really seen so, so much as, as we know it today. But there were all sorts of, you know, not everyone, in terms of how the government perceived lots of these prints, Sometimes they were seen as problematic. So in the 1790s, after the French Revolution kicked off, there this was a period when William Pitt was very fearful of radical ideas coming up and revolutions starting in London. And so to counter that, he, well, there's this thing that some historians call Pitt's reign of terror, which is where they had a really heavy hand on people talking about the king in any negative kind of way. So you weren't really allowed to criticise the king or the government. And it's pretty shocking, really, in, in kind of how authoritarian they were about that. And so some of the printmakers there were actually sent to Newgate prison if they over, overstepped the line. So that was a... And that, but, but the problem with that, of course, is that, you know, they sent all the radical printmakers there and um, became a bit of a hub of radical ideas, you know, yeah. <laughs> like sending them all in together. So not perhaps wasn't the most effective effective kind of approach. But yeah, I mean, in general, people absolutely loved them. And across Europe, people people loved hearing about them in Germany. They loved hearing about the prints and the printmakers and Hannah Humphrey and how the print selling was going. In fact, there's there's a quote, you know, there's all sorts of quotes from the German commentators. And it's interesting because they feel like they present these prints, but they feel like they need context. So, for example, the plum pudding one that I just described the German commentators gave a bit of context about, you know, the fact that the English have such great appetites. So, and it read, in more than a quarter of all English caricatures, the subjects are shown guzzling, or, which amounts to the same thing for true English diners, smacking their lips in pleasure. For the English are a nation of eaters. All travellers describe with amazement the assimilative powers and enormous capacity of the typical English stomach, which the German can seldom match. It's <laughs> so. Ooh, so the challenge accepted yeah. <laughs> Germany. Um so the no it's saying that the Germans cannot match the English the English capacity for eating. So the Germans are obviously an, impressed at, at, at our appetites. But I think you know that's interesting it's a kind of for the Germans perhaps it was interesting because it was just a kind of social uh, like a, a, a social commentary and they were they were finding it interesting just learning about how English people <laughs> went around uh, around their strange ways. So for all sorts of people, the prints were received in all sorts of ways, really.
0: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save
2: 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.
1: So satire isn't necessarily that new in the, in the 17th and 18th, oh, sorry, in the 18th and 19th centuries. How does it differ in terms of themes and target from earlier satire and earlier not necessarily poking at people but I'm thinking say that that giant print of the Leviathan for the Civil War aimed at you know all the stuff that you see printed about Prince Rupert and his demonic familiar and and so how does that change where in Bill Rosea?
2: Yeah, it's a good question, and it's something that I really tried to grapple with when I, you know, I was working out, you know, why hasn't this happened before? Why didn't it happen earlier? And of course, there were satires, there were lots of prints, and, you know, there are there are kind of salacious prints before this, of course, and, you know, and and all sorts of places in France hmm. as well. Am I right in
1: thinking that Hogarth predates Gilray? That's
2: it. Yeah. So Hogarth. Yeah. So Hogarth lived in the kind of first half of the 18th century really and he was working in probably the sort of 1740s was his heyday and Hogarth is often seen as the father of modern kind of political satire sorry the grandfather Hogarth is seen as the grandfather and people like Gilray Gilray's generation often seen as the father so if you like Hogarth the, the one before Gilray but the thing is with Hogarth is so he made these great paintings and these were these kind of modern moral messages. They're wonderful mm. kind of successions of showing society in decline. And he also made lots of prints, or lots of these were made into prints. And there are lots of similarities between those and what Gilray was doing. And, you know, the, the image that I was talking about, about Prince George, he's literally reclining like a Hogarth character. So, so obviously Gilray was well, well aware of, of Hogarth. But Hogarth... I think he's he's often seen as the father of English painting, and I think he's often perceived as slightly above Gilray in terms of art history. So he's considered like a big figure in art history, and I think that's because he was also a painter. But anyway, he was mm. basically doing the same sort of thing, and there's a lot of similar themes. Like he Hogarth, there's a lot of. Images of things like the, the roast beef of old England and stuff like that. Then, after Hogarth, you know, there are lots of other printmakers in London. The macaroni print shot was a great one. And there are all sorts of satires happening, both literary satires and also visual satires. But I think what really happens with Gilray is that, you know, because he's been taught at the Royal Academy schools and because he has this excellent in, in in ability to actually depict people. You know, he could actually depict William Pitt. And we know that William Pitt definitely looks like what he looks like in Gilray's images because people would look at them and laugh. And it wouldn't have been effective and it wouldn't have worked if it didn't actually look like William Pitt. So, you know, the jokes, because the jokes work, and we know that they worked for people at the time who knew what William Pitt looked like, we know that Gilray was depicting Pitt in a kind of a semi-accurate way. Um,
1: it doesn't work if you haven't got it. I mean, spitting image would have been nothing if it didn't look like the people involved.
2: Exactly, exactly. So Gilray, but, so, but I think the other thing to say with Gilray is that he was genuinely really creative. Like he's a really brilliant individual, really, really wacky, really surreal. You know, some of his images would look happily in a Dali painting. Um, You know, the prime minister being depicted as a mushroom or the prime minister... Being or the the members of you know members of parliament being their heads being put in sherry bottles or uh, the the Bank of England reimagined as the old lady of Threadneedle Street uh, you know a lady dressed in 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 notes mm. um and 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 money um so he's like I think Gilray really elevates the, <laughs> the, the 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 satire you know he does bring his kind of own personal personal style to it and what's more these prints were produced. In their thousands, you know, there were loads and loads and loads of them. Hogarth was making paintings that would take, you know, a a good amount of time to produce, but Gilray would churn them out within hours of the news arriving. And that's what made them so exciting. Um, So I think that's like a real heyday, that period, probably 1800, 1790s, 1800 is a real great time. And then the prints, that that kind of print satire, uh, those kind of like print, satirical prints go out of fashion really. The print shop window loses loses to technological developments. And then we have things like Punch. So people are going to look at Punch yeah. and they look at sapphires and Punch. But equally, I think the kind of, you know, Gilray left such a great legacy. You really crystallize a huge amount of British humor. Um, and I think you can see that in things like Carry On Cruising or HMS Pinafore, you know, those Gilbert and Sullivan operettas. And even spitting image and the people who created spitting image said that they owed Gilray a loyalty a royalty payment even. It's <laughs> so um you know they the spitting image is a real kind of um I think that's really championing Gilray's spirit. And then of course cartoonists yeah all the time today all the time are using Gilray little quirks and jokes. So he's still around. I think his legacy is is everywhere really. <laughs>
1: So that's satire before Gilray. But How does satire evolve during his life and immediately
0: after him?
2: Yeah, so uh, from sort of the 1790s is when Gilray's working and he's making some good satires. And I think you can see his style developing, you know, he gets better at it and I get—I think they get faster and quicker. And there are all of these events that are really propelling it. You know, the French Revolution is great content, to be honest, and as is these characters. Just imagine, I mean, if you can visualize Charles James Fox, literally a round, incredibly hairy man. He was so hairy, he was known as the Eyebrow. That was his nickname, right? And he had like, he was this really over-the-top flowery character who could just kind of seduce the room with his presence, you know, super, super charming. Um, And would often come in covered in probably alcohol from the night before and probably he's been sleeping at someone else's house the night before, that kind of thing. And then opposite him was William Pitt, who was the prime minister, who was really tall, lanky, like a beanpole. He was super diligent and uh, really hardworking, probably, yeah, you know, just like the complete opposite character, both brilliant men. But, you know, that gives you a sense of the kind of people that they were working with. And so I think they got to know these characters that they they were satirizing over the period and they kind of developed all of these, they developed their own versions of those individuals. And that's what happened with Napoleon. That's what happened with um they developed the character of John Bull, who was this great champion of Englishness. So John Bull comes around as a useful visual representation of of an Englishman. And he is this guy, he's the kind of guy that you see at the pub who's, you know, like a jolly guy who works the fields and has an honest wage, but you know, uh is very patriotic, that kind of thing. Yeah. And he and then and then, you know, and they develop all these kind of They develop all these kind of visuals, like when the Napoleonic Wars come around and they have to represent all these different European countries, they, you know, they often use different animals to represent them. So they come up with these kind of visual codes, which I guess develops the kind of satire at the time. But then I think, you know, the characters that are featured do drop off in that, I mean, Pitt and Fox die in 1806. Nelson dies just a few months before. George De- Devonshire, Duchess of Devonshire, dies. That point point two, and then in about 1810, lots of the printmakers kind of go off scene, or you know, for various reasons, they either die or they, you know, suffer from madness. So it does a, it does kind of quite abruptly stop, and then there is this change of mood. So in the 1810s, Gilray dies in 1815, but. You know, with the onset of the George of the Victorian age, there is a kind of shift in what is perceived as funny. Mm. I think so. What was seen as really hilarious and you know jokes that were just really, you know, a bit saucy and a bit kind of you know brilliant kind of jokes at the time and people drinking far too much were, were, I think, kind of re. They were seen in a different light towards the kind of 1830s, seen as. Um, just a bit embarrassing and a bit noosh and very crude and not really a very acceptable, to be honest. And Gilray was rewritten as someone who kind of betrayed his own talents and was, uh, had, was lacking in morals. Um, and it's all at this kind of time when Thomas Bowdler's, you know, removing the blemishes from Shakespeare. And there's more of a focus on earnestness and moral duty. And, and, and so the, with the Victorian period, Gilray and the satire and the humour of Gilray is is kind of officially, kind of rewritten or or written out of history, if you like. I mean, Queen Victoria destroyed loads. All of the Gilray prints that were in the royal collection, which had been collected mainly by George IV, uh, were destroyed by or well, many of them were destroyed by Queen Victoria. They were just seen as too inappropriate to collect. Uh, have in the. In the roller Collection. So that kind of gives you a sense of how the humour and the satire changed. Yeah, really. maybe
1: that's one example of where she was not actually amused. Yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. She <laughs> was not amused. Yeah. But I think Albert had to do it because it was just like she couldn't. <laughs> yeah, have, yeah. She couldn't. Now mention <laughs> the Victorian period
1: there because one of the cartoons that I'm very aware of is the, is the duel between Wellington and Winchelsea.
2: Oh, yeah. Uh,
1: that, Wellington yeah. with the massively misshapen head in, in that duel.
2: Yeah, no, I know which one you mean. So that's from, I think, well, it must be the late 1820s, I suspect. 1829
1: was when the duel was fought.
2: Oh, right. So. Okay. Yeah. And that's, that's yeah, well, that, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's really, it's really surreal that, isn't it? It's this like enormous... He's just got this enormously, uh, very strangely formed head. I suppose it's like his features being really overemphasized. Um, and I think that's in the spirit of, you can see the kind of weirdness of Gilray that, that was still alive there. And, you know, it, it, in the Victorian period, I think the kind of images that the satirists of the Georgian period had created did did kind of filter through a bit. I think perhaps that's one of the things that I found most surprising when I was searching or looking at this these prints or maybe the thing that I find most alluring and interesting is that you know you often think of the Georgian period or you know not historians who know about the Georgian period but people in general in pub you know the the average person walking on the street if you talk about the Georgian period they probably think about Jane Austen and those delightful drawing rooms and manners and assembly rooms mm, and halls and all that kind of
1: bloody nonsense yeah
2: <laughs> yeah which obviously did exist a bit but you know actually What's What you realise when you look at these satirical prints is that, A, there were these incredibly colourful images going around and at those those very balls, you know, these prints would have been on the tables and you could rent them out. So people were looking at these prints at the balls, but they were also incredibly strange and surreal. you know. And I don't think we often associate that with the Georgian age, but actually there was some really kind of brilliantly... I mean, I often think of these satirists as like, if you wanted to make an advertising campaign today, if you wanted to make an image that people would remember and they would not forget and it would really stick with you and you just wouldn't be able to quite forget it because it's like so weird and kind of a bit unnerving, you'd get Gilray. Gilray would be your guy. And and they were just really brilliant at kind of creating these really strange (laughs) images. So I think that's something that, um, you know, you can see in that Duke of Wellington print that, that, that's there as well. And maybe it's a general thing in history, you know. We only ever see the kind of things that survive or well, the, hmm. the images that people want to project. But actually, there's often a lot more life and laughter and character than under the surface, I think.
1: So you mentioned earlier on about the the, the government and particularly Pitt taking somewhat of a harsh line where when it comes to satire in fear of the revolutions and things like that. So mm-hmm. were, were there any Notable like controversies or legal issues that surrounded particular sar- satirical pieces or individuals in this era.
2: Yeah, well, there were quite a few, I think. Perhaps the one, uh, the one of the big scandals of the time was an event in 1809. And it was all to do with George the third's second son, the Duke of York. Oh, that one. Duke, yeah. yeah. So so he and and his mistress, a lady called Mary Ann Clark, and it's quite oftenly, often referred to as the Mary Ann Clark affair. And what it was all about was the fact that Mary Ann Clark, it was revealed, had been taking payments from army officers who wanted to kind of push their career forward or get a promotion, that kind of thing, in exchange for promising that she would Whisper in her lover's ear, like, oh, why didn't you promote this one or this one? You know, so kind of paying for promotion, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So it's this idea that there was rotten, you know, corruption at the very head of the army and how unpatriotic that could be, at, if anything. Um, Corrupt, so this all came up. Duke Frederick, yeah.
1: never, never.
2: I know. So, you know, so, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it's classic. Like all of this stuff is always going on. But the real kind of scandal that happened. And the thing that really the British public were most interested in was when, because of this, Marianne Clark had to go. And she is this lady who had really come from nothing. She was the rags to riches kind of story. Uh, you know, she'd really climbed the social ladder to become the mistress of this duke, And she was tried or she was asked to Parliament to, to ask some, answer some questions about what was going on. And it was just you know imma- massively hyped. It was like one of the big scandals of the day. Everyone was desperate to be there. Everyone wanted to know all the, the details because, of course, as Marianne Clark was, you know, asked, talking about all these details about where she was on this day, where she was on that day, all of the secrets of the Duke of York's personal life was being revealed. So I think it's comparable to perhaps the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard, you know, scandal. People love listening to it because of all these yeah. kind of juicy little snippets that were coming out. And when this happened. You know, there there are details like, for example, when the, every, everyone suddenly found out that every, you know, the Duke of York's personal assistant, one of his servants was to bring him a fresh set of clothes when uh, every morning at this certain address, which was where Marianne Clark lived. And I don't know if you can put two and two together, but you know, <laughs> the, that's the kind of the, the thing, the thing that people like absolutely loved to hear about. But there was a huge amount of debates that went around because of this, but also there was, there were, a flurry of satires and a flurry of prints. There were so many prints made, um, and the printmakers just kept kept producing them. Perhaps you know that they just knew the public were desperate to see these. Uh, but you know, people like Gilray were just churning them out, and so there were so many prints made that you could actually buy the collection of prints referring to this very one affair. And. The Duke of York had to was basically pressured under all of this kind of public pressure and all of this hoo-ha, even, to, to step, to step down. So it did actually make an impact on, on, on what was going on in politics at the time. Um, and I think the prints and the kind of satires at the time, you know, I mean, these are, I think if you're someone in a public, in the public eye, you know, it's one thing having to step down, you know, if, if you want to step down. But I think, people making fun of you using satire is absolutely savage and probably the thing that is the most embarrassing and you know the thing that would probably pressure you the most i think anybody
1: who's gone viral on twitter for reasons they didn't want can possibly testify (laughs) is
2: this this talking from personal experience (laughs) not yet but
1: that day is coming you
2: know (laughs) talking for a friend yeah exactly you know i mean we see it today right with the twitter mob Mm. i guess that you know, people once the kind of momentum builds up, it's it's probably the worst punishment. Worse than paying a big sign, worse than having to step down from a job, is is being, you know, that person that is made mockery of in the public eye. Um and and in the eighteenth or in the, the, the early nineteenth century, that thing was probably the print shop windows and the satires was was the most effective way to do that. So are there any lesser known or
1: overlooked works from this time period you think deserve a little bit more attention or that you just find particularly interesting?
2: Well, I think, you know, I've talked a lot about Gilray, but the, the book that I was writing was really about then So there's another guy called Thomas Ronanson, <laughs> who's great fun as well. He had some good pals called the three, they called themselves the three jolly dogs. <laughs> they were like the drinking buddies. And then there's a guy called Isaac Cruikshank. But um, if I had to say, and you might know the name Isaac Crikshank, because Isaac Crikshank the father of George Cruikshank, who goes on to become the great Victorian illustrator of Charles Dickens's book. So it's interesting to compare father and son, Isaac Cruikshank being this great kind of Georgian guy who made all these crude illustrations uh, or crude prints and drank himself to death pretty much. Um, but they all celebrated it because they said, you know, he died as he lived. But, you know, but in comparison, his son, George Cruikshank was a Victorian and he was teetotal, you know, he campaigned for teetotalism and he illustrated family friendly, you know, ilus- illustrations, I guess. So, so that's quite interesting. But I think, you know, it, it, if I could say could I say maybe not a work of art or of work that is overlooked, but actually a person Mm -hmm. who's overlooked in this whole thing in is that it's okay. So we have the names of James Gilray and Thomas Ronanson, but actually the person who made it all happen is the print shop owner, a lady called Hannah Humphrey. And she is a real hero. uh, Sorry. uh, She is a real hero of this, of this moment because she's the one who owns the print shop. She's the one who does all the business. She's the one who, organizes these quite chaotic artists you know she's commissioning the works and she's also dealing with the the flat of publishing some potentially quite dangerous material so so managing all of that as well and i often think of her as the kind of simon Cow figure um you know she's the kind of brains and the money behind it all and then the people who get the big name you know the people who get the glory i guess are people like gilray and Rowlandson. um at least in in our eyes looking back at it and she's and they're almost like the kind of X Factor starlets who kind of get who stand on the stage. But actually, it's Simon Cowell uh, or Hannah Humphrey who's kind of you know being the puppet master. And so I think Hannah Humphrey is a great businesswoman kind of figure. There were lots of women who were running print shops like these at the time, and she's the one that makes it all happen. She's the one that um, has the judgment and is is really savvy about lots of these things. Um, but of course, like many figures from history, because there aren't really many sources about her, it's very very hard to write about her you know, in a a definitive way. And so that's tricky for a nonfiction book. But if you're making a movie, Hannah Humphrey might be the star. So I think Hannah Humphrey is the big overlooked kind of figure this period. As well as you know, I mean Isaac Cruikshank was working with his wife, who was helping do all the prints, and she, you know she she was probably um, the, wearing the trousers in that household. I, I suspect. <laughs> so there's a lot of people behind the scenes with these with these things, as I'm sure is the case with many artists from history. You know, they're the big name, and then there's lots of people kind of helping out and that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, it's about time that you know you you, you got front and center of history hit and took it away from Snow, there isn't it?
2: yeah thank you (laughs) no
1: I never well thank you very much for that Alice thank you very much Um, have you had fun?
2: yeah no for sure I mean I love I love talking about James Gilbert.
1: excellent well we do hope you'll come back once we've found something else you can be angry about
2: Yeah. (laughs) yeah the next book I'll come along
1: So, ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to know more about Alice's work, then you can start by buying her book, Uproar, and we will have links to that in the History Rage bookshop. Uh, And you can follow her on TikTok, Instagram and Twitter, as I refuse to call it, X, at history underscore Alex. Uh, But once again, thank you very much, Alice, for bringing your History Rage.
2: Thank you so much for having me. (laughs)
1: Well, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed this episode, and we'd really appreciate any reviews you could leave for us with Apple, PodChaser, or Amazon. You can follow us on Twitter at Hi- History Rage or individually. I am at Paul Bavel,
0: and I am at
1: Kyle G History. And if you subscribe to us on Patreon, you are really helping us meet the cost of podcasting. Your £5 per month will get you early episodes, entry into all of our prize draws, the invite to put questions to future guests, and of course, the coveted History Rage mug. And you can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash History Rage. But until next week, from all of us here, stay angry. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.